bonus alert. What's up, guys? I'm Zach Grauman. I was Andrew's campaign manager and now the co-host of our weekly podcast, Yang Speaks. And welcome back. Every once in a while, in between our Monday episodes, we're just going to throw in a bonus episode midweek. And this week, we've got the one and only Crystal Ball. Crystal Ball is just a badass. She's the host of the show Rising on YouTube, but you guys should check it out. She's also got a really fascinating background because she worked for MSNBC before this and has run for Congress in her own right. So Crystal and Andrew talk about a whole bunch of fascinating topics. They talk about the future of the progressive movement now that Joe Biden's our presumptive nominee. They also talk about what the heck it's like to run for Congress for the first time. But the most important thing they talk about is something I'm extremely passionate about, the Yang media blackout. So if you were following the 2020 race at all, you saw that Andrew Yang got the least amount of speaking time on every single debate stage, and he had some of the least mentions and coverage in the entire race. So with Crystal, her and Andrew go inside what we call the belly of the beast, what it was like working at MSNBC and what incentives are there. Why does a candidate like Andrew Yang get no coverage? So it's a fascinating conversation to learn how the world works, learn how mainstream media works. I hope you guys enjoy. So tune in now and also tune in on Monday when we're back at it. Thank you guys. Hello, everyone, and just want to welcome the incredible Crystal Ball to Yang Speeds. Crystal, yay, let's give you a round of applause. Oh, my uh. gosh. I have <laughs> I have known and admired Crystal uh, from before the campaign really got going, where she was an advocate for universal basic income. And one of the first things I did was try and track down anyone who was an advocate for universal basic income before I ran to be like, hey, I want to run for president on... UBI, uh, you know, let's do this thing. So, Crystal, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be on. Congrats. I'm very excited about this new venture and direction. And yeah, people don't realize even before that, we had met when I was at MSNBC and you were a guest on the cycle when you were with Venture for America and we'd kind of kept in touch. So, um, so we are longtime friends here. Yeah, I remember that. I remember really liking you uh, even from our MSNBC interview uh, just thinking like wow she really has her shit together uh and then i saw your background too you're like a trained cpa uh you ran for congress and, and that alone uh must have been an incredible set of experiences because i feel like for you and at the time you you, you were i'm sure one of the younger candidates yeah when i first started running i was actually 27 it was the uh, 2010, so this is the year of the Tea Party. Great time to be running as a progressive in a rural Virginia district. Um, but, you know, it was one of these situations, which you could probably relate to. I mean, running for Congress is nothing like running for president. But in terms of sort of jumping in head first, I had never worked on a campaign. I had been political in the sense of like ordinary engaged citizen. And I think like a lot of people in this political moment, I had a kind of awakening then when I felt called to get more involved than I have ever conceived of before. And it was actually my husband, who you've also met, who was like, look at this guy who's representing your congressional district. This guy is lame. You'd be better than him. You should just run for Congress. Like you care about these issues. And it's still a lot of the things that, you know, that animates you, that animates me. Um, the corruption that runs so much of our politics, the problem of money in politics, the way that's infected both parties, like those were the animating issues for me jumping off. And so he kept at it. And eventually it was like, you know, what the hell? What's the worst thing that can happen? I run and I lose. 
life goes on. And in fact, I did run and I did lose and life did in fact go on. <laughs> All as those I'm three sure. things happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As I'm sure you may be discovering as we speak. I too ran and lost and life has continued. Uh, there's some <laughs> lessons here, Crystal, we can impart uh, to anyone who's considering running. You will still be alive uh, the day after the race, even if you lose. Well, and to and not and not just that, and to be serious for a moment, like I think it's obvious to people watching what you accomplished in your campaign, and especially now where universal basic income is like on the tip of everyone's tongue, it's become a bipartisan, um, you know, bipartisan advocacy for a sort of modified temporary universal basic income. But you know, when you started, we looked at the polls. To the extent that people even knew what that was, they were like, no. Yeah, <laughs> and you that's moved true. the needle so much in your campaign and not in a strictly partisan way. So it's not like just, oh, you ran and you lost and life goes on. It's like you ran and you lost, but that doesn't mean that you didn't accomplish anything. And in my own way, too, with my campaign, obviously, congressional campaign, much smaller scale and like an obscure rural district, very long odds. I got absolutely crushed, all those things. And yet what I wanted was the ability to um, raise the issues that I cared about that I thought were important to the country. Like I wanted the platform and the voice to be able to do that. I didn't get that by becoming a member of Congress, but I did get it in a different sort of way. So, you know, it's it's funny how sometimes you ask for a thing and you get it, just not nearly in the format that you expected. Well, good for John encouraging you to run back then being like, yeah, you'd be better than this person, which I'm sure you would have been. Um, so <laughs> can you describe what it was like to run for Congress as a 27 year old newcomer to politics, a woman in rural Virginia? Um, it was very, very scary for me. And one of the things people might be surprised to learn, although actually I don't think it's that uncommon for media people, is I'm a sort of naturally more introverted person. Um, and so to put myself out there like you, that. You were a raise, CPA. It means you just sit right. there with numbers uh, for a long time. That's not exactly. exactly. <laughs> that that appeals to me. Like being with a spreadsheet is an appealing thing to me rather than human beings. So, you know, not only to put myself out there just in front of people, but also to have the courage to raise my hand and be like, I think I should be the one. Like, I think you should vote for me. I think I would be the person out of your available choices who would best represent that district. That was, to me, very, very scary. And I was a young mom at that point. I had, now I have three at that time. I had one, she's very little. She's just a toddler at the time, my oldest now, Ella. And um, I remember taking her to an event, a women's event, in Virginia for Democratic women candidates. And the sign-up sheet, you're supposed to put down like normal sign-up sheet. This is funny how I remember all these details. This is how like painful it was for me. Your name. And if you were running for office, you're supposed to like check a box and write down what you were running for. And I was like paralyzed because it was so um US Congress. For me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, like, do I put down U.S. Congress? Do I put down House of Representatives? Do I like what's the right thing that I should put down here where people aren't going to think I'm stupid and don't know what I'm doing? So I agonize over that. I get in the room. 
I'm sweating, nervous, and the child is misbehaving, which makes me feel even more awkward. I mean, she's just being a normal toddler, but, you know, I'm just, like, stressed down about all this stuff. And then the time comes during their talk where they're like, raise your hand if you're running for office. And I literally didn't do it. I mean, this was one of the first events. This was an event for women running as Democrats for office, and I was too afraid in that moment to do it. But I kept going. I kept pushing. I got. I found my voice. I found like you know um, an enthusiastic base of support. It was a brutal year. Tea Party wave. All of that. I mean, seeing all of that up close and what has led to now was also just you know incredibly formative. But ultimately. Um, what I came to was realizing that I was so fixated on like me, my performance, how am I doing? What are people thinking of me? That this really wasn't actually about me. Yes, I'm the person on the ballot. Yes, all of that. But when I focused on the people in the room and what they needed and what they weren't getting, then suddenly that took a lot of the the fear out of it and it made it, you know, made it a lot easier. And I think it was also more, you know, more successful ultimately and more impactful because of that focus. Oh, that that's tremendous, Crystal. I, I remember how awkward it was telling people I was running for president uh, for a while where they were like president of, you know, like <laughs> your co-op board. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. United States of America. <laughs> so... so. Um, so I, I remember all of these internal hurdles you have to overcome yeah. uh, and then just saying it to someone and having a straight face and then have them receive it in a particular way. I'm sure for you, it was a real journey over a number of weeks and months where you'd say, I'm running to be your congressperson. And then like over time, it would it would actually become natural and uh, feel uh, like you. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it ever really felt 100% natural. But, and of course, you know, you had your own like stereotypes that you were overcoming um, as an Asian American. I had stereotypes that I was overcoming. I had people tell me like the only thing you should be running for is after your children. And I'm not talking about (laughs) Democrats (laughs) who said stuff like that to me. But, you know, you sort of come to a a place and a, a peace with it. And ultimately, you know, I feel... That decision point for me, obviously, of deciding to step off the the path that I was on, the CPA path, the spreadsheet path. Not that there's nothing wrong with that path. It's a good path. I don't want to like. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good <laughs> but path. But to step into into public life in that way and say like I'm planting my flag in the ground and I'm going to do what I can to try to lift my voice to these things that I think matter. Um, that was obviously a real pivot point in my life and one that I'm, you know, tremendously proud of taking in spite of the fact that, you know, still today, like we were talking before we came on air, like people are being mean to be on Twitter and I'm still like, oh, it's hard, you know, but (laughs) come on, like how hard are people's lives out there? If you're not willing to step out, get uncomfortable, take that incoming, then what are you actually willing to do? Well, Crystal, there are a lot of people right now who are trying to make changes in their communities. And I feel like your journey is such like a, an, an awesome example for so many. Like if you had guidance for someone who's thinking some of the same thoughts you were thinking when you were 27 about trying to do something positive in their community, what they'd have to go through. Let's say it's a woman uh, who like isn't necessarily going to get the kind of uh, reception or support that, uh, you know, you might hope for. Like what kind of guidance would you have for them? You know, one of the things that 
has um, been a struggle for me, and I don't know that this is for everyone, but I think there's a lot of cultural programming in America for women to like be the good girl, right? You get a lot of praise for like doing the right thing and following the rules and deferring to others and sharing and playing nicely. Like those things are all um, reinforced um, continuously, you know, for little girls in particular coming up in America and probably even more so, um, you know, young girls of color. And so for me, one of the it's stupid, but like one of the psychological barriers I've had to overcome is being willing to people, you know, to break some eggs for people to think that I'm divisive or controversial. Because if you're going to get anything done, if you are going to change the status quo, right, saying every American should get $1,000 regardless of income, like done, that's a controversial thing. And there are going to be people who don't like you for it, who say means things about you for it, who have a financial interest in keeping things the way that they are, who want to spear and dismiss you. And so if you have any sort of critique that is going to alter the status quo, you have to be prepared that you're not going to be the good girl. You're not going to get the gold star. You're not always going to get the pat on the head. But for the people whose lives you're changing, you will be a hero. And it's a small price to pay, ultimately. It's like a psychological price. It's, it's really such a small price to have to bear. But for me, that's been something I've really had to check within myself, that desire to like pull back and say, oh, maybe I'm going too far. Maybe I'm pushing too hard. And I think I suspect that that's the case in particular for a lot of women. I bet you're right. Uh, certainly. I had a note on, on my phone, just this is sort of a fun uh, anecdote, where it just says, just remember that to the vast majority of Americans, you are the magical Asian man who wants to give everyone money. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and, and like, no matter what happened in terms of the campaign, I was like, whatever, everyone, <laughs> everyone's just going to think that. of you in that way anyway. So um, another that. sort of funny comparison is that I went to this Asian American in politics event uh, early on in my race uh, in D.C. And absolutely no one like uh, was clamoring to support the Andrew Yang campaign at that event <laughs> like, like early on. It wasn't like Andrew Yang is here. It was more like who, what, what is going on? And this is after I declared. Um, so just that reminds me of like, you know, when you're talking about being in the room with the uh, women who are running for office, the Democrat and not raising your hand um, like it's. It's not easy. Yeah. Well, do you mind? Can I turn the tables a little bit? I mean, what was kind of like the what was the toughest moment of your campaign? What was that low point where you had to reach for those sort of like, you know, the note that that bolsters you or your family or whatever the things are that keep you whole and sane? There were a lot of tough moments on the campaign. Uh, I think um, after the first debate uh, was like a struggle because I didn't get much airtime and uh, there was a sense I'd let a lot of people down. Uh, and so from uh, so that point was like a, a gut check. Uh, there were other tough points around just being on the road a lot and being away from family for a while when things were not going well. And you're just like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, you know, uh, or early on in the campaign, we were scratching and clawing for every bit of resources. And I would call friends of mine and be like, hey, can you just donate $2,000 to my campaign? People that $2,000 is not that big a deal to. Um, and they would 
not do it honestly they would uh, or they they would like and like that stuff where just like oh my gosh man like you know we've been friends for years <laughs> like this is not anything that should be that big a deal like at least yeah. in my world like if the situation was reversed i think i'd do it without uh, much thought particularly if you called me if, if you called me then i'd be like oh my gosh you're calling me like i really should have done this already but like people just wouldn't do it uh you know like that I had that say, and, and it surprises you because on the one hand, people you really think you're going to be able to count on are like, no, I'm not there for you. And then people who you're barely in touch with, right, who have been like barely a part of your life. I mean, for me, I tell you very specifically, there's like this um, high school philosophy teacher, you know, I took one year of philosophy with him in high school and I never even would have thought to reach out to him to ask for me. And this is not a wealthy individual. And yet every time I sent out a fundraising solicitation, he would come in with like $500 and, you know, those people show up as well. So it really, really reveals um, the sort of, I don't want to say the character because I don't want to make it like a character flaw issue, but it really shows you who's going to be there personally for you in your life. Well, what I've said is that when you do something that's really important to you, whether it's start a business or run for office, uh, you make some friends and you lose some friends. Yeah. I, you know, that that's happened every single time for me. And, uh, you know, you, you just have to, like, try and shrug and move on. But there are some real, like, scars and, like, wounds where you're just like, wow, I, I thought that if there's anyone I could have counted on, it's you. And it turns out <laughs> like that, that is not the case. Yeah. Uh, so, so there were... Uh, certainly ups and downs to the campaign. Uh, but one of the things that we tried to be is we tried to be the positive, effusive campaign because it seemed like politics generally was such a slog that, you know, like if if you could avoid the negativity, I thought that would be a massive advantage. I think that that really came through to people because while you had this sort of dire assessment of the state of America, you had this you know, one of my boy was critiques. I wrong, huh, Crystal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything's great. I don't know what you were talking about. <laughs> Things are going perfect. Um, no, one of my critiques of the Democratic Party that I think you share is that you know there's a lot of contempt, frankly, that comes from some parts of the party towards some types of people in the country, um, especially you know in rural areas or people who voted for Donald Trump. Like, there's just when I was living in Kentucky, um, a state that I really, you know, really, really love and find interesting, that people are wonderful and, you know, would, would be happy to make my home there again if given the chance. And I would, their politics are very interesting. I would send out things that were going on in K Kentucky, people losing health care, right to work, um, being passed, terrible for working people. And I would get back these messages that are like, well, screw them. They voted for Trump. And it's like, where did we, like, I didn't sign up to belong to a group of people who are going to pick and choose who, who they deserves health care or something right, like that. and who has who they have compassion for. Right. I mean, there's the same group of people that rightly, in my view, would have lots of compassion for, you know, people who are incarcerated, who like broke the law, who messed up, but they believe they deserve a second chance. I believe that, too. But you're going to show them mercy and compassion. But for this other group, because you don't like the way they voted or you think that they're not, you know, evolved enough on different issues, you're going to just write them off and have complete contempt for an entire state based on that. I'm 100% aligned. 
Like, yeah, and that, and that was one of the things that I really admired about your campaign is I felt like that message of, you know, um, we've got some problems in this country, but in terms of the people, like just fundamental sort of respect and value of the people of the country, which doesn't sound like a radical notion, but I fear is a bit of a radical notion. I thought that was one of the most important um, and frankly, most courageous parts of your campaign. Well, thank you for characterizing it as courageous. It was just, to me, the common sense, straightforward, natural thing to do. Uh, but I, I remember being attacked as like a right winger uh, when I retweeted a New York Times article about opiate death rates in uh, predominantly rural white parts of the country. And that It was literally a New York Times article about uh, these death rates. And then people were like, oh, this is some kind of, you know, like appeal to 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 uh conservatives all right i was like why would an article about opiate death rates in rural white parts of the country somehow only matter to a certain segment uh of americans like you know that would matter to everyone in my mind uh and so that there were some things that i frankly just learned uh through the process that would never have occurred to me yeah no, I remember in early days, there was this whole thing going on about how your support was all coming from white nationalists. And that was a, you know, a whole theme of the early days. And look, you see that consistently with kind of, you know, outside the establishment movements, there's an attempt to just like dismiss them as, you know, oh, they're, those people are all, you don't want to be associated with those people. They're all white now. They're all have these problematic views or whatever tactic is used <laughs> to dismiss them. And they tried that very much with you. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it was deliberate. It was very confusing though, from my perspective, because I was like, where, <laughs> like sure. where, where did this come from? <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So you run for Congress, um, lose, and then MSNBC reaches out and says, like, hey, do you want to uh, come on air? Like, what was that, that, that conversation? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I assume you know this story, but I don't know if you know this story. So at the end of my campaign, there are these stupid party photos that are released on a right wing blog in Virginia. And they're like, you know, I mean, I'm I'm of age. I'm fully clothed uh, like but they're sort of, you know, sexually provocative. Right. And so this thing takes off like wildfire. And I've got this weird name. I'm young, like all of that <laughs> stuff. Right. I mean, it just all feeds into this stupid cable news feeding frenzy. And so I this is a kind of an interesting part of it. Most of the advice I got from the sort of political consultant types was just don't say anything and hope it goes away. Right. Well, it was not going on. I mean, it was like the third most Googled person in the world. So stupid. And if you looked at the photos at this point, you know, it's so mild in comparison to the politics that we have now. But anyway, so I decided to go on cable news and defend myself and say, like, look, for you, Crystal, sexist bullshit. If it was a man, you wouldn't care. In fact, Scott Brown, I don't know if you remember this, had run that same cycle and he had like posed nude. And the media narrative around that was, oh, he's like, he's a beefcake. And this is like part of his appeal. But with me, I was like a hoe bag who shouldn't be trusted, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so I went on. I defended myself. I called it on as a double standard, as a bunch of sexist bullshit, which it was. And um, the funny thing, and this comes back to like getting the thing that you want, just not in the package that you expected, was that that very thing, which had been done to try to destroy me, actually gave me that platform. And so, you know, I was a long shot congressional candidate who got her butt kicked. I would never have gotten any media attention but for that. And so after the election, some of the shows that had had me on um, asked me to come back just to talk about like, let's talk about women in the midterms. And then I did okay with that. And they're like, let's talk about, you know, this political issue in general. And that just sort of snowballed. And I shout out to the, you know, the two people in particular who put me on the most in those early days I don't know if you remember or know Dylan Radigan, who yep. had been at, at CNBC and then MSNBC and who was one of the, you know, the people who really understood the, the financial collapse, somebody I still really like and, and trust. And then Megyn Kelly, who, of course, very independent minded over at Fox. And so those were the two people who started having me on and it just sort of snowballed from there. So it's funny how these things work out sometimes, Andrew. Wow. So then when MSNBC uh, uh, offered the job, like that must have been a very big lifestyle shift for you, because at that, you know, to that point, you'd uh, been living in Virginia. You, you know, had uh, one daughter. Had you had your second child at this point? No, I had him while I was at MSNBC. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that must have been a very big lifestyle switch. Did you commute or did you guys move to New York? No, we moved to New York. And in fact, we moved to New York. Um, even before I got the show, when they just made me a contributor, which is like, you know, you're like a, you know, a fancy contributor at CNN, but I was like a low level, like, yeah, whatever, we may put you on the air if we feel like it, contributor at MSNBC. But we kind of decided to throw in with that path and see what happens. So we had already moved to New York. Um, and yeah, it was like, the most exciting thing I could imagine to have that show. And I had some, I got to work with some, you know, some great co-hosts. I got to work with my executive producer who had been actually Dylan Radigan's executive producer. But before that, he's like a, he's like a cable news legend, frankly. He was a, um, he was the EP of the Today Show, executive producer of the Today Show. He, he hired Matt and Katie. He built that outdoor plaza. So he is still my like TV mentor. And it was just an incredible experience to get to work with him. And at the same time, 
you know, you get an, a real education in just the sort of sausage making of the cable news world, which has been, I think, part of the, the that inner understanding is part of what I've brought now to Rising that I think a lot of our um, oh, yeah. viewers respond to. Yeah. You, you know, because you, there you aren't a lot like of people who have been on the to inside. cable news very often. Yeah, well, I mean, that's there aren't a lot of people who've kind of been on the inside, but are willing to critique it because it's look, it's hard. These, you know, you get to know these people, they become your friends. You don't want to like be mean to them, but at the same time, there are obviously a lot of, as you know, um, blind spots and failures in coverage, and I would say in particular, sort of class blind spots and um, blind spots for any any anti-establishment candidate. You know, desire to sort of minimize them and minimize their approach because of what it means for for upsetting your access or the status quo that sort of gives you your station there. And so I think that perspective has been part of what um, people have responded to on Rising. I agree. But I, I want to hear more about your time at MSNBC because you were there for how many years? I can't remember if it was, f- I think it was five. Oh, that's significant. Yeah, five so, years. So you, you were deep in uh, and how did that, what was like the peak of that relationship? Uh, and then how did it end? It's such a funny, it's such a funny story. Um, so partly I wasn't necessarily, uh, exactly politically simpatico, <laughs> as the, um, 2015, 2016 primary started to come into view. I did a monologue, um, in, Early, I want to say it was 2014. It was before Hillary Clinton had even officially declared. And I did this monologue that was like, look, I have respect for Secretary Clinton and what she's accomplished and her intellect. But this is a terrible candidate right now. Like she's so tied in with the establishment. She's so tied in with Wall Street with these, you know, she sat on the board of Walmart. She gave these speeches and made all this money. Like, please, Hillary, don't run. Because if you do, it's going to freeze the field. We're going to have very limited options. And you are the wrong candidate for the moment. And that has become obvious in retrospect. And frankly, a lot of that was obvious at the time. But nobody had really said it. It was was not that obvious at the time. And certainly it was not a popular opinion. And no one had been willing to say it on like mainstream airwaves. So um, the Clinton folks did not appreciate that perspective. (laughs) And they um, apparently, you know, reached out to the president of the network. And then, look, I wasn't censored. Nobody told me I couldn't say what I wanted to say ever, right? But I was told that any of my future commentary about Hillary Clinton had to be, um, you know, vetted by like the president of the network had to sign off on it. And look, and this is part of understanding how this medium works. It's not that there's a directive that comes down and says you will support Hillary Clinton, but you're going to be subject, you know, what's going to win you praise and what's going to like make your life more difficult, basically. And I'm a human being, I'm sure that I changed some of, you know, how hard I went or how aggressive I was or how often I was willing to say it because I knew there was that added level of scrutiny. But ultimately, you know, there was a big, um, there was a new NBC News president, Andy Lack, who came in 
And it's a funny backstory because I, you remember Brian Williams was in trouble. He'd lied about things and they were trying to figure out. They pulled him off the air. But here he is, this like quarterback player with a big, you know, multi-million dollar contract. And they're trying to figure out what to do. And so they basically bring in Andy Lack, who was an old friend of Brian Williams, to figure out what to do. And the decision was we're going to clear out all of the opinion um, on daytime MSNBC so that Brian can come in as like a breaking news anchor, but it would be uncomfortable for him to have to come in during like these opinion hours. So we're going to fill out the lineup with NBC News journalists. And this was like this brief moment before Trump got elected when, you know, after Trump got elected, all of the opinion hours are what skyrocketed in the ratings. And so they sort of abandoned that direction. But at that, I, that time, the idea was we got to get rid of all these like people with opinions and put in the NBC News people. And so I was part of that calling where our show was canceled. Alex Wagner, Ronan Farrow, Joy Reid had a daytime show that she lost. Then she ultimately ends up on the weekends. Um, Ed Schultz was let go in a similar time frame. There was just like a wholesale cleaning out to the point. And it really, I think, wasn't, you know, personal, so to speak. I, I never really even met Andy Lack before that decision was made. Um, but I think the fact that it was so impersonal made it harder for me to take because it was like, it was like the good girl thing again. Like I did everything that you well, I mean, asked you'd, me you'd to do. I mean, you'd been there for almost five years, you know? I mean, yeah. that, like, uh, I'd, I mean, that, I'd been be... there. I'd been like the team player whenever they needed me to sell. I was there. Like I raised my hands for all that to like all the feedback I got was I was doing well. And the cycle had some of the best ratings among young viewers, which was supposed to be like an important metric and all like I felt like I did it all right. And I still got canceled. And that was like, that was a hard thing psychologically for me to deal with. Yeah, it'd be hard for anyone. I mean, you, again, you're there for five years. You're uh, putting your heart and soul into something and then it, it gets axed. Uh, yeah. But, you know, again, like, I'm grateful for that. Because now, with what I where I am at this point, first of all, I took the time after MSNBC to have another child, which I obviously is a great blessing and gift that I'm very grateful for. Um, but also, like, I have so much more uh, freedom in what I do now. I'm so much more of a, a free person, frankly. And um, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I would, I would never want to go back to that role that I had, even though it was so painful at the time to lose. So, you know, I'm I'm grateful to them because I I think I think it all worked out, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so I appreciate that moment in the life in my life, even though it was kind of hard to take at the time. Well, I would say so. I mean, you you, you are off to the races now with the rising uh, and the entire uh, the book, which I have directly behind me. Nice. Here it is. Uh, the Populist Guide to 2020 uh, by Crystal and her co-host and co-author Sagar and Jetty. Did I get Sagar's last name right? You nailed it. You nailed both of them. Yes. Good work. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you're now this unfettered, independent voice and people really sense it and respond to it. Uh, I can't tell you how many times people would send me your monologues uh, or video clips from your show. Uh, and I, I think what's wild is I feel like you're now this hybrid between 
Um, like it just, a, and this is meant as a compliment, but just like as like a full on independent voice, like podcaster in a media company, you're like this kind of hybrid where it, it feels like you're melding like a personal point of view with um, institutional weight. Yeah, I think that is exactly right. And I don't know that there's anyone else who's quite in this lane. My own theory in terms of sort of um, wielding power and leverage within the media, um, if I I think like an activist here, is the most powerful conversation is to have a combination of real grassroots following plus elite awareness, right? And, you know, this is this is partly the model of your campaign, too. Like you developed this grassroots following. It took forever for elite media to actually take you seriously at all. Um, Bernie Sanders in 2016 had the same thing. Like the crowds were there, the enthusiasm. There was clearly like energy for this movement and these ideas. And it took forever for elite media to take it seriously. And to me, that melding when you can have some foot into the kind of elite world where they they know that you're there, they're paying attention to what you're doing, you're having some ability to influence that conversation, plus a real grassroots following is like the magic formula. And I'm not saying that we've like achieved that, <laughs> but that's kind of that's kind of ultimately the goal. And um, you know, one of the things that I, this is just an, essentially an accident. I mean, some of these things were in, intentional and some of them we just sort of stumbled into. You know, the fact that we have this very cable news looking set, right, which is different from um, most other YouTube programs. Uh, it's funny how those sort of visual indicators are really important to people because if they have this more anti-establishment or populist viewpoint, it's not represented in mainstream. First of all, it's just very validating to them to see someone who at least looks mainstream having a similar perspective and like validating those ideas. But we've also had so many viewers tell us that what they love is that they can take our segments and send them to a brother, sister, mom, aunt, friend, whoever, who doesn't necessarily share their politics, who's mostly watching sort of mainstream news, and they won't reject it out of hand because it has the right look. Yeah, so it looks familiar. Sort of, it just yeah, looks like looks another familiar. show they don't watch. Yeah. So they'll at least like listen to it with a more open mind because it looks like something that they have watched before. So um, like I said, that was sort of... I didn't see that in advance as being an important part of it, but it has ended up being a, a significant part of sort of the innovation of Rising, I think. I like it. You're like a wolf in sheep's clothing. I like yeah. it. You just like throw that set on it. <laughs> then you can say whatever you want. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get 
to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. So you just noted that MSNBC uh, didn't exactly shine a spotlight on Bernie, uh, you know, during, <laughs> during his uh, campaign ahead of 2016. Um, do you have any perspective on that? Like, what, why, why does it seem like the folks in certain environments don't exactly embrace the opportunity to talk about the Bernies of the world? I think there are a lot of reasons. And again, I, I don't think... Sometimes it is as blatant as like, you are not going to cover this person positively. Like sometimes it legitimately is that blatant, but mostly it's more these sort of, um, sort of incentive structures, um, and blind spots that exist. I think one of the big blind spots that exists throughout the elite news media or legacy news media or whatever you want to call it has to do with class. Right. And this makes sense. These are mostly upper class people. They're mostly surrounded with other upper class people. At this point, there's so little local journalism that you don't have as many people coming from like, you know, the scrappy beat in Scranton or wherever. There's just, you know, for example, and I I say this with love because I genuinely love all the co-hosts I had at the cycle. When I started the cycle, I was the only person on um, a four co-host who wasn't from Massachusetts, right? So there's a little bit of like a monoculture that creates n- some natural blind spots. So if you have a movement, whether it's Donald Trump's movement where, you know, he has a, um, a, a truly devoted white working class base um, that, you know, people in news media just they just didn't know or see these folks. So they were easy to ignore. Bernie Sanders has a disproportionately young and working class base. So there's just sort of a natural um, tendency to dismiss what you don't have personal experience with and don't personally understand. So I think that's part of it. I think another part of it is the way that political journalism works is you're very dependent for your promotions and your own sort of visibility and buzz and all of those things that come with that on access to, you know, the the politicians in this town. And so it becomes very uncomfortable to challenge or go against those politicians or to embrace someone who poses a threat to them, right? So Bernie Sanders, obviously, whatever you think of him, posed a threat to the sort of establishment of the Democratic Party in this town. That means all the consultants who depend on the gig flow. That means all of the cable news pundits whose 
contracts depend on access to that structure, right? That means donors who love to have their egos stroked with those phone calls and, and get to show up at the White House Christmas party and all that stuff, right? Bernie was legitimately a, a threat to that established order. And so it was more, it was uncomfortable for a lot of mainstream journalists who depended on access to that world to challenge that world and to have an open mind, I think, about the Sanders movement. And again, these things are like, I don't want to make it sound like it's some nefarious plot. These are natural human instincts, like in-group thinking and, you know, the people you're surrounded with and the, the things that you're comfortable with. Like, all of that is very natural. But because you have this kind of monoculture within the news, it adds up to very skewed coverage when you're talking about candidates who don't fit their mold who, or who come from outside of the establishment. To me, a natural move, if you were that organization, would just look up and say, OK, I guess we should try and hire someone with a different background, outlook, perspective, and make sure that we're covering uh, like a set of issues or candidates or uh, regions that we're not seeing right now. But it, it doesn't seem like many organizations really have that kind of uh, process of soul searching. I haven't right. seen it. Well, and that's where the, um, you know, that's where the bottom line um, comes into play, because ultimately, most of these news outlets, the Times, the Post, MSNBC, CNN, most of their viewership is a sort of affluent white liberal viewership. So in a sense, you know, these are these are capitalistic organizations. They are they are looking out for their own interests, their own bottom line. They have a consumer in mind. This is never explicitly stated, of course, but it's true. They have a particular customer that's going to buy New York Times subscriptions, that's going to sign up for the Washington Post, all that stuff. And so that's who they're going to cater to, mostly in cities, mostly white, mostly affluent, mostly liberal. And so that's also part of this whole package is that there isn't really an incentive to bring in those other perspectives and try to play to other regions of the country because that isn't the customer base that they're looking for that their advertisers are expecting to want to reach. Yeah, it, that makes sense given that at this point everything's just flowing towards the almighty dollar and wherever the dollars are, wherever the advertising dollars are, uh, that's where your organization's going ahead. And you did something I really admired, which is you tried to elevate non-traditional candidates out in different parts of the country. You're the reason why I became a Richard Ojeda uh, <laughs> fanboy and supporter and became <laughs> friends with Richard. We ended up hiring several people from his campaign staff in West Virginia. Uh, so if you want to talk about some of the work you've done to try and address the problems that you and I are describing right now. Yeah. Well, it goes back to what we were saying about um, some elements of the Democratic Party having contempt um, for certain regions of the country, for, you know, for working class people, in particular, white working class people, as you very much discovered. And um, but I think, you know, there's so much class contempt um, in our society in general, so much looking down the nose, so much, you know, condescension towards working class people who 
we're discovering now more than ever. I mean, these are the they're essential workers today, of course, but they're always essential workers. These are literally the people who make our country run. Like we're completely dependent. They're gonna on be a, yeah. They're gonna be a lot of people in urban locations right now that are going to absolutely freak out if there's a supply chain disruption out of Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa. Uh, you know, where if, if meatpacking workers and truck drivers like decide not to do what what, what they're supposed to do, like uh, you know, we're we're gonna find out. Uh, just who's important very quickly. Uh, and there are people right now that are worried about that happening. You are 1000% correct. I don't know if you followed um, this uh, Purdue chicken processing plan, I believe down in rural Georgia, and the workers were protesting because they weren't getting hazard pay, they didn't have safety protective equipment. And one of the workers was like, we are out here risking our lives for chicken, right? And that's that's like to me so telling and is also kind of a central theme of your campaign, like just respecting people's humanity, treating their lives as more important than having this the shelf fully stocked at all times with Purdue chicken nuggets. I mean, it's really it's really that basic. And so one of the things that I believe profoundly in is representation of working class people in the halls of power. Not in like a focus group or in a poll or like. Come you know, on, Crystal. All we have to do is find out what magic words to say to them and then that's like right, check exactly. that box. The messaging. Right? Or like as, you know, as human sort of props, but, you know, behind a politician who's speaking. No, I think working class people should have power, like actual, like be the ones holding power because they are the ones, not just today, but always on the front lines in our economy. And just as representation matters for diverse communities, it matters that you have people who are our servers and our waitstaff and our delivery workers and people working in warehouses or like you mentioned Richard Ojeda, who's a veteran who served our country. Like it matters to have those people not just being pandered to, but actually having power. And I believed in my, you know, I'm, I'm sort of becoming less uh, hopeful about the Democratic Party at this point, if we're being honest. But I really think that one of the ways that the Democratic Party could bridge this divide that has been artificially inserted between the white working class and the black and brown working class is by having more voices that are themselves working class. And so you don't have that sort of cultural barrier of people like, you know, I mean, I saw the the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee supporting these like lobbyists who barely lived in the district and they'd come back and they'd get a consultant to tell them how to talk to people in their own hometown. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why not find people who understand their community, who talk like their community, share, like aren't just viewing this as an outsider, they actually share in the struggles of that community. Like, why not try to elevate those individuals and see what happens in terms of how they wield power and who they ultimately represent? So Richard is a great example of that. J.D. Shulton, who is running again. J.D., and by the yes. Way, J.D.'s going to win. Let's go, in, J.D. In Iowa, he's, I mean, just a, just a great guy, right? Great guy. I, mean, that's like I, the best, I, the I thing donated that comes to JD to uh, just the other day. Just continue if there are other people like JD and Richard. Yes. And, ru- <laughs> and, and by the way, in, and running against a particularly odious member of Congress, Steve King. Yeah, the Steve in- King's that, that guy who literally, even the Republicans kicked him out of the committees because he got a little too blatantly racist. 
Yeah, he's from Iowa, okay, which was not a part of the Confederacy, and he still had a Confederate flag on his in his office. I mean, this is like what we're talking about. But so people like JD. There's uh, another woman down in North Carolina I love named Dee Dee Adams. She got her start. She's a te- she was a teamster working on line and yes. factory. I mean, you know, these. I, I think we need more of that in the Democratic Party in particular, in politics in general. I mean, you just don't Amen. have those. Voices represented. So um, that's something that I, you know, that I believe in and have tried to try to work on, try to highlight some of those folks. Well, I was so confused where when I would meet people who are working class in different parts of the country. And when I said I was a Democrat, they were like, oh, no. And I was like, man, you really hate Democrats around here. And I was like, aren't we supposed to be sticking up for you, the truck driver, you, the farmer, you, the waitress? Like what? what like what the heck has gone wrong for the Democratic Party where working class Americans don't think it's their party in a lot of the country. Like that, that to me is like the central theme that we seem to be missing. It's, it's a, it truly for me is heartbreaking because I've always seen myself as a Democrat and I've always believed that the Democratic Party was the party of the working class. But you know, this is, this is frankly, it's been an intentional shift, right? And this started with Bill Clinton in the nineties. There was an intentional decision to orient the party more around sort of, you know, white collar affluent suburbanites. Not that there's anything wrong with those individuals, but that's a very different kind of politics because you're talking about people economically who more or less benefit from the status quo. So they're not interested as much in putting sort of those, you know, economic transformational economics at the center of their political agenda. And so that decision has translated over many years to where we are now that, you know, the the Democratic Party year after year after year has become more centered around that demographic. The politics are more representative of their perspective. And then, you know, for the black and the brown working class, it's basically like, well, you can't vote for the Republicans because they're too racist. So you're stuck with us. And the Republicans do their own version of that. Right. They've got like their affluent interests that they cater to. And then to the white working class, it's like, oh, well, those Democrats hate you. They have contempt for you. So you're stuck with us. Um, And and what happens when you divide the multiracial working class like that is you've ended up with two parties that basically represent um, affluent interests. And I'm not trying to say like they're both equivalent or there's no difference between. No, the two. no, it's true. Of course. But if you ask your look at this response on coronavirus, the economic response. I mean, every single senator voted to give four trillion dollars, which is much more than the media typically reports. But they are leveraging the amount that was in the bill. The Federal Reserve is leveraging that to give four trillion dollars in loans to big business. The small business fund that you evaporated know, it, no, like that. And we knew it would. This was entirely predictable. Why is there even a cap on that fund? The amount to individuals, pathetic and one time payment. And you've got millions who are getting kicked out of their jobs, filing for unemployment. I mean, these are all choices that were made. None of this is inevitable. These are all choices that were made. And they are the byproduct of two parties that have the interests of the affluent first. And so I think, you know, the the results of that could not be more clear than outrageously in in this moment. And with that small business, I mean, this just completely outrages me. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, people and I know people as well who are totally left out in the cold. They're like applying and getting uh, no response. 
and try, trying to keep their businesses afloat, trying to keep their employees employed, trying to be able to pay their rent, you know, for their for their business, for their location. And because the implementation of this program, first of all, the dollar amount way too small. Why is there a cap at all? Second of all, the implementation is left to the banks who were just so learning. Dumb. Gave so concierge service to their biggest Any clients. Any client of theirs just got the red carpet. And then if you didn't have a private banker, you were fucked. That's exactly right. Had they had special concierge service and all the mom and pop small businesses got screwed. And so what are we going to see coming out of this crisis rather than, you know, uh, the kind of reinvigoration of um, small, you know, small businesses, of local industry, of keeping wealth, you know, locally in our communities? That was one possible outcome of this crisis. And instead, we're going to have the exact opposite. Yes. Amazons, the Walmarts, the Apples of the world, they're just going to get bigger and bigger. And I just was reading before we started talking something like 100,000 shops, stores are likely to go under as a result of this. And again, that was a choice made in a bipartisan fashion by both of the parties here. Uh, a lot of these jobs are not coming back. Uh, it's heartbreaking. I see the same things. Uh, and to me, the best course of action would be for the government just to be like, look, just send us the bill. Like, you know, like, hey, landlords, don't charge your tenants. Send us the bill. Hey, like you hey, businesses, you have rent, send us the bill. We're, we're just going to pay for it over this multi-month period of time. And then when it's time to reopen, then you can just come back. But until then, like we got it. And you're right. Like, what is the purpose even of a cap? Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah. the, the, you know, when you're talking about trying to elevate people from different backgrounds into leadership, it reminded me of German companies that have board seats for people who are in the factory or the manufacturing plant. Like you literally have people with high school uh, with the equivalent of high school educations, but they had a lot of technical, you know, apprenticeships and training, but literally like from the, the shop floor to sitting there in the boardroom being like, hey, that's a bad idea. It's a good idea. And like, you know, the decision making is going to be entirely different for the fact that those people are genuinely there, uh, not just expressing that perspective, but pulling the lever. Um, right. That's the kind of thing we would need in our government wholesale. Yes. It's like you had people who actually just said like, hey, guess what? You know, like uh, I'd like... Like my people are putting their lives on the line for fucking chicken nuggets. And, you know, they like they don't have adequate protection. They're getting paid like chicken scratch, probably almost like, you know, literally uh, yep. uh, and, and the rest of it. I mean, it it's uh, it's infuriating. It's heartbreaking. Uh, you know, like I'm grateful that at least we've moved the needle on this conversation where it seems like there's going to be an openness and enthusiasm to universal basic income that they're. Uh, because to me, it's like tens of millions of Americans are going to get money in their bank accounts. and They're going to be like, well, that was great. And then when someone says, hey, you should probably do that all the time, uh, then people will be like, that's probably an excellent idea. But you're well, right. Like we've mishandled this on, in so many ways. Well, and that is the thing is I think part of the reluctance to do more is then you make people realize that you could do more <laughs> that all of the like, how will you pay for it? was all bullshit, bullshit. right? All bullshit. <laughs> it was total yeah. crap. And like, oh, once you realize the government could be part of helping me secure my economic interests or, you know, providing health care, then you're not going to turn around and forget that that happened and be like, OK, I'll go back to working for 725 and killing myself and not having health insurance and still not being able to pay my rent even after the pandemic. 
you're going to say, oh, wait a second, government. You did this before. We could do this again in normal times. In Let's normal times. Let's go ahead and do that, right? Which yeah. is, I think, part of what, like, how come we're not having more of a conversation about healthcare during a pandemic? How come we're not covering coronavirus treatment during the pandemic, it's because if you do that, then people are going to say, well, wait a second, if you can cover my coronavirus treatment, how come you're going to let me like starve and die, die of this and other condition because of yeah. cancer or because of any other illness? So I think that's part of the reluctance, frankly, to do more is because then you people start to expect better. I used to tell people on the trail, Crystal, the biggest lie in American life is that we don't have the money, that people are just going around and be like, oh, we're going broke, we're going bankrupt. It's like, are you kidding me? You know, when push came to shove, we found $4 trillion for the banks. We found $1.5 trillion for the big companies for stock buybacks. And Americans saw it very clearly just now. It's like when you needed it, $2.2 trillion or $2.8 trillion or $4 trillion was there. You know, like we can do much, much more for our people but so many people have essentially been brainwashed to think that we're broke. And yeah. meanwhile, we're the wealthiest society in the history of the world. And you have a trillion dollar company like Amazon paying zero in taxes while hiring another hundred thousand people in the midst of a pandemic. You know, like the 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 uh, the uh, confusion um, is intentional. I mean, people have just been yeah. spreading these messages and hammering. The fact that like, oh, these people are trying to pull one over on you. Meanwhile, like people's communities are, are disintegrating. How quickly were they able to flip the switch and pour tons of money to support the financial system like that? Hours, that days. That backstop yeah. was in place. But the backstop for average Americans, for small businesses, still haven't found it. I mean, they were able to mobilize to undergird and provide a safe, big, you know, big, fancy safety net for the financial system. But those mechanisms have not been designed and are not in place for average Americans. And it tells you where the true priorities lie. Moments like that really reveal where the true priorities lie and what this country is actually set up to do and who it serves. Yes, it's uh, socialism for the wealthy and well-connected and uh, rugged individualism for the average family that's out there trying to figure out how the heck to to pay the rent. That's it. It is very dark. uh, And I I remain, you know, I'm a very positive guy. I mean, I guess you'd have to be positive to run for president out of total anonymity. (laughs) Rest of it. I, I believe that illusions are dying as a result of this crisis uh, and that people will be hungry for a different, more dramatic set of solutions. Uh, I certainly hope that we're in position to be able to make those solutions real as quickly as possible because the suffering is unimaginable. Yeah, I, I hope that you're right. And I think that you are. I really genuinely do. I think the mask is coming off in a lot of ways um, in terms of our priorities and who this town ultimately serves. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today.
am I allowed to turn the tables? Can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure thing. <laughs> so how are you thinking about, you know, I was I was critical of how quickly you jumped on board with the Biden campaign and when you endorsed him and all of that. But I am curi- genuinely curious about like, how you're thinking about a potential Biden administration, what are your best hopes and what are your concerns? Uh, so uh, I intended to stay neutral, but, but then it, it looked like Joe was going to be the nominee to like a 99% probability. Uh, at that point, I said, you know what, like we need to try and unify to beat Trump because he has like this massive head start, a resource advantage, the bully pulpit and all these other things. Um, so that was my thinking. And I get along uh, well with Joe. Bernie was an inspiration for me. Like, you know, in, in my mind, um, to me, it was about trying to put ourselves in the best position to win. And I, like, I, I'm in a position where I think that any extra day of a Trump presidency is is a disaster. And that it, it like four more years of this would be uh would be genuinely be catastrophic. I mean, heck, we're living it now. My best hopes for a Biden administration is that we win uh, and then we start digging out and solving these problems in much bigger, more dramatic ways. And I, I personally think the entire, like, I'm a moderate, I'm a progressive, like, I think that stuff's going to go out the window in the same way that uh, you saw things go out the window when Congress came together to pass the stimulus where like, yeah. you know, if you were a fiscal conservative, you were still like, yep, 2.2 trillion, let's do it. You know, like, like I think that there's going to be a clarity of need and a practicality in our approach that's going to make it so that all things are on the table because people are dying. Um, and it's not just people are dying directly of the virus. It'll be that people are dying on the streets in different ways and we're going to have to become much much more aggressive about trying to to solve people's problems that is what i think um our best chances and so does it concern you because i see joe biden as having been part and parcel of getting us to the place we are now where even you know before coronavirus working people were so pushed up against the wall where, you know, I 40% of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency where you're talking about I'm $7. I'm sure it's much higher now, and, yeah. Right. I mean, like, all in the name of, like, efficiency and increasing GDP, jobs shipped overseas, sure, go ahead with automation, displacing workers and not providing anything, you know, any support underneath. Um, you know, obviously, like, the disastrous war on drugs. That's something you've been incredibly courageous in calling out. He was a prime architect of that. Do those things concern you in terms of how he will actually govern? Because I think one of the things that you and I share, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I know you said this on the campaign trail, is that Trump is a symptom, right? He is a problem in and of himself, but he's also a symptom of a deep problem. And so that's my concern with a Biden administration is like, he's actually... I read part your essay in the Populist the Guide to 2020. I yeah, remember this. Yeah, he's part of, of he's part of erecting the system that actually enabled a Trump to come to power. And and frankly, I'm more fearful of what could come after a Donald Trump as bad as Trump is. Um, you know, he's like incompetent and bumbling, and he doesn't know what he wants, and he's like buffeted and can't. He couldn't even get a question changed on the census, and that's not to undermine the real danger that he represents. But I'm more fearful about. What do four more years 
of incrementalism and reinforcing the status quo that brought us Trump, like what comes after that? I'm optimistic that no sane uh, administration would be pursuing incrementalism when you have literally historic levels of unemployment, uh, like the lowest proportion of Americans working in history, I believe. Like, uh, you'd have to be very, very misguided. Uh, but they're pursuing and, incrementalism now. I mean, that's what the parties have teamed up to do in Washington right now while 26 million people are filing for unemployment. Now, I'm, I don't disagree with the fact that this response has been... Uh, like a shit show and yeah. and that we need to do things differently. I think most people know. And I think most people also know that like I, I disagree with uh, with Joe on many of the fronts you just described and others like am I for universal health care as like a human right? Yeah, like we should have had that decades ago. The fact that it's tied to employment is absurd. So there yeah. are all of these things that I disagree um, with Joe on. Uh, but I'm personally confident that if we win, we're going to be more open-minded about the depths of the problems and what we need to do about it. Because at this point, the problems are laid bare for all to see. Now, that it could be that that optimism is misplaced, um, but that's truly what I believe. Like, job one, beat Trump. Job two, dig deep and start working to solve these problems. If it turns out that I'm wrong and that we're just scratching the surface then I'll probably run again and say like, well, fuck this. Like, uh, you know, like uh, I'm going to try and <laughs> like get, get the real things going um, in another way. I mean, that's what I tried to do this time, but yeah. I came up short. And so then, uh, you know, you have to try and push forward in as uh, positive and practical a way as you can. Um, and I, I'm, I'm optimistic that we're going to be open to different measures than has historically been the case because we're dealing with a generational crisis and everyone can see that. I pray that you're right, Andrew, and I just don't see much sign in this town that that is going to be the case. But I certainly pray that you're right. But you just made some news, I think. You're thinking you might run again if things don't go well. Uh, I'm already on the record saying I'm going to run oh, for office. For some, I'm going to run for office at some point. I mean, you can't not. Um, but you and, would think about running for president again? Uh, yeah, I would. I mean, you know, it's yeah. like... Uh, I ran to solve the problems. The problems still exist. I'd actually have a much easier time with another run than this last run because now, you know, people have heard of me and uh, like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like, well, you know, and you know what to do. I mean, you just learn so much from the process too. Is there anything you would? Is there anything you would change in your approach? Well, well, first I had replaced the Zach guy who uh, who's just like a real weight <laughs> on the whole yep. campaign. Dead weight. <laughs> <laughs> Good move. Good move, my friend. Yeah. What well, one thing is uh you know, I I would spend more time in DC trying to familiarize people with uh with my vision for the country and have them engage with us uh intellectually. What you just said makes me sad, Crystal, where you said it's like, well, you're in that town um and you don't see like that reckoning, that sense of uh, you know, um of a need for change. Um, but one of the things I found in my campaign was that if I spent time with someone, uh, they would often go from who the hell is this guy to like, oh, this person seems sincere, seems um, engaged with the issues, seems like they genuinely want to help. Um, and there were many, many 
parts of the establishment that I did not have that opportunity with that I think I can at least move a degree in the right direction uh, if I invest the time. Um, so that's one thing I would do differently. Uh, before I was coming at it from the outsider lane because I was you know like new on the scene and the rest of it. Um, and I want to be still myself and true to the vision while also trying to present to folks that like I'm a reasonable leader with the nation's interest at heart uh, and a patriot. Like I'm not here to castigate or uh, demonize anyone. I just want to try and move us forward because we're decades behind the curve. A lot of people are suffering uh, and we need to fix it. And to me, this is not even just like us versus them. This is like just any kind of enlightened self-interest. It's like, look, if you're rolling around in your urban center, it has to be clearer to you than ever that your life, your very life is dependent upon people risking their lives at every part of the supply chain uh, to try and get you the chicken nuggets. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like, uh, you know, like, like thinking that somehow if they get more, you're going to lose is total bullshit. Like I just need to open people's eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. And I, you know, I think you're right. Like optimism is the only choice, right? No matter how many dispiriting things I see coming across, you know, across my desk every day here in this town. And, you know, I I think there are a lot of reasons to be discouraged if you believe in the values that you believe in. But there's no choice other than optimism. There's no choice other than believing that you can make that change because the only other option is a complete, like, cynical nihilism where you just disengage. Fuck this shit. yeah, and frankly, I am very, I, am I get very it. Worried. I get that stuff. I'm, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sympathetic. I, and I'm to that. worried that that is going to be the um, decision of of a lot of people, especially, a lot of people. especially, frankly, young voters, working class voters who just don't see themselves represented or, frankly, even treated with sort of respect by um, by the party apparatus. And so that is that is one of my real fears is that that sort of nihilism and cynicism will set in. So you're checking me, reminding me that optimism is really the only option. Oh, that's a legitimate fear and concern. And if someone says like, hey, um, these institutions are morally bankrupt and don't care about me, I would say like, I completely understand why you feel that way. Uh, You might not even be entirely wrong. (laughs) <laughs> right, but you can change it. That's it. That's the thing is I actually agree. I think they are morally bankrupt. I don't think that they really care about you because from the beginning of this crisis, I mean, again, it's never been more clear. Who did Trump bring in to talk to? All the corporate CEOs and the banks. Who did, you know, Richie Neal, who's, you know, the head of an influential committee here in, uh, in on the Hill, who did he want to call up, like Hank Paulson and Bob Rubin? I mean, it's just like the same cast of characters. And they're clearly the ones who got their giveaways and got their Boeing, got their own piece of legislation handcrafted for them. Even in the small business bailout, right? The bigger guys get the concierge service. Like, it is morally bankrupt, in my view. That's not like, I think I don't think it's, it's up for question, true. personally. But. No. That doesn't mean it can't change. And I think yes. that's the piece that you have to remain optimistic about. And you have to recognize that, like, you know, that struggle doesn't happen like that. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not easy. There are forces that are raid that are that like the status quo, that benefit from the status quo. And so you can't get discouraged just because it doesn't happen for you this time or because the system doesn't all change at once. It takes a, a you know, sustained struggle 
is basically the path that you have to choose. Uh, I, I'm concerned about the negativity as well, because I get it. You know, it's like it's rational, just like it would be entirely rational for someone to check out on politics because it seems exhausting and mind numbing and so negative. And they'd be like, my life is better if I'm just watching Tiger King or, uh, you know, something more diverting. And uh, I, I I endorse Tiger King <laughs> as, I have, as a yeah, fine I way watched, to spend. I'm like the only person in America who has not it's watched hilarious. Tiger King. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a... It's a. It's actually a well done documentary. Anyway, it, so okay. like, and so any, anyone who decides to check out is like, I'm sympathetic, uh, but we don't have a choice. Like, we have to engage uh, with the systems, with politics, and try and right the ship. Uh, and there, there's no other way. It's why I ran. You know, I ran a nonprofit for better part of seven years, um, and I concluded I cannot solve the problem unless. I rewrite the rules of the economy from the top down. And there yeah. was only one way to realistically do that. It was run for president and win. So, okay, let me try that. Uh, and while we did not win, like I, I did feel like we made massive progress towards trying to, to implement a different vision. Um, and I'm committed to that. I understand why people have given up, but we can't give up. I mean, like, there's just no choice. And yeah. one thing I admire, I admire a lot of things about you, Crystal, but you're also like this super mom. You've got like three kids. When you talk about being in DC in that town, like I, I get the sense you like wake up at the crack of dawn or even before dawn, you like do these shows and the rest of it. Uh, and and then you're, you're like transporting yourself um, like to like a totally different environment and then becoming super mom. At least this is what I'm imagining. Uh, and so like you're a parent like I am. It's like we can't give up because, you know, our, our kids need us to win. That's that's it. That's it. Exactly. And and also and not just our kids, Look, our kids, let's be real, have a lot of advantages and are incredibly lucky and privileged within this system and society. But like, you know, do I want them to grow up in the kind of brutal place that would pick like certain people deserve to have it all and other people deserve to basically like you know deliver their sushi at 2 a.m for um for scraps and not have health insurance no i don't i don't think that's good for anyone i don't think it's obviously not good for the people who are you know on the front lines making low wages struggling every day like it's obviously bad for them but I think it's just corrosive to the soul of the country. I think it's corrosive and destructive to everyone that is involved with that. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I will say that I look at my boys um, all the time and I reflect on how differently they're growing up than how I grew up. Uh, and one of my boys is autistic, uh, but neither of them is particularly rugged. I'll tell you that. Like they, you know, I look at them and it was like, these kids are so... Uh, Lucky would be the euphemism, I guess, where, you know, it's like, <laughs> like, like just a lot of things are going on. But uh, I agree with you that uh, that even the winners lose in this winner take all system that, that and you're seeing it, too. If you were to just uh, be driven by like mental health indicators, like you go to even elite college campuses, the kids are fucking miserable. You know, it, like the, these are like the offspring of the people that like scratched and clawed their way to the top. And then what was the point? You know, like uh, that there is this inhumanity that uh, punishes us all. And certainly it punishes the people who are left in uh, 
material deprivation and early deaths and poverty uh, first and most immediately, but it is corruptive for everyone. Uh, And there are all of these material incentives right now that distort our behaviors in ways that make us just worse people. There, there are a lot of folks that, you know, and you, you've, you climb to the top of one of these hierarchies and then you've sacrificed so much for all of this wealth. And then you're like, all right, I guess it must have been for the money. So this money must be the end all be all, uh, you know, that that's why I became an asshole <laughs> over the last right. like number of yeah. years. That's exactly right. And we have we have to have, and uh, I don't know if you're a fan of the economist Thomas Piketty, who's done you know seminal works yeah, uh, of course. along with his colleagues on inequality, and he has a new book out that it's very long, but I'm working on it. Um, but one of the things that he lays out is how throughout human history, societies have always had to construct narratives and mythology around why some people deserve this much and other people deserve the scraps. And we tend to th- to think that our mythology is like better than, you know, if you're talking about like feudal or kings and queens and all of that. You mean but our meritocracy mythology? <laughs> exactly. I mean, we have to recognize we have our own mythology. And what it says is like, oh, if you are that person that scratches and claws your way like an asshole to the top and like crushes everyone, that you deserve those billions of dollars, billions upon billions that you could never even spend in your entire lifetime. While I worked these hard other for that people, money, Crystal. I worked hard for that money. <laughs> and you deserve it, Andrew. <laughs> you deserve it all. But these other people who, you know, are struggling and scraping and who are lower income, who are working class, whose, you know, daily life is just very difficult just to to make it all work that that's what they deserve. And so if that is the mythology at the core of your country, like, of course, that leads to treating some people like they are modern day lords and ladies who deserve to have not only that money and what comes with that, but but to be the people who hold power, who make all the important decisions, right? And to be sort of treated as these demigods. And then at the other end of the spectrum, because you are not worthy of those things, you deserve to be treated less than human. And so I think that core mythology is part of what you have really effectively struck a blow against. And that's why, you know, I always tried to to lift up your campaign and what you were doing, because I think that core message is so fundamentally important. It is so radical to say, like, every human being is worthy and deserves dignity and deserves to be treated fundamentally as a human being as a human. I can guarantee that just about everyone at that Purdue processing plant works a fuck of a lot harder than I do every single day. You know what I mean? hundred percent. Yes, Um, absolutely. uh, And uh, and hopefully that becomes apparent to more people. Uh, I certainly felt like the meritocracy bullshit really was uh, like this sinister way to convince people. It's like, well, if if you want, it's because you worked so hard and uh you know you were so talented and that if someone's losing well they must deserve it somehow uh and i I just knew how ridiculous that was uh, on its face maybe in part because i'm i grew up the child of immigrants and my first real job after i graduated from law school um was set to pay or did i mean i worked there uh paid me more than my father was making and my father Hmm. had 69 patents and a phd in physics and i was like on what world 
does my stupid uh, corporate lawyering, like looking at this document for uh, errors, like in what world is that more valuable than my father literally inventing shit? Like yeah. that, that, that makes zero sense. Uh, and so to me, like the, the ridiculousness of it became apparent kind of early on. Um, but it's that mythology that keeps so much of our people in line. Yeah. No, I mean, so many. There's another great book, Utopia for Realists. I wish I could remember the author's name. Rucker Bregman. He's a friend. Yes. He's a. Oh, not kidding. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. So he he talks about like bullshit jobs and how so many of the jobs in our country and a lot of developed countries are basically bullshit. Like if they went away, no one would really notice. And these tend to be like the more highly paid white collar professions. He gives this example. Of Crystal, you mean if those management consultants like like disappeared that we'd all be law, you know, <laughs> like what happened? <laughs> we would all be, we would all miss them immediately. All the CPAs like me, right? Or all the, all the YouTubers like me. <laughs> but um, he gives this great example of in Ireland, there was like this banking shutdown. And of course, in advance, it was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? It's going to be a disaster. We can't lose the bankers. And then it was like no big deal people just figured it out they actually used their local pubs as like a sort of ad hoc way of lending money and it was all totally fine and no one really missed a beat so even at that level it was like so many of these jobs are just sort of puffed up bullshit you know moving money around or moving paperwork around or I don't know I remember what you said checking the errors in like a legal briefing or whatever so much of it is that and meanwhile the people who work the hardest who actually make the country run on a daily basis are the people who are treated um, the shabbiest in their work in their lives by our society and I think that that's a crime yeah I, I agree we have to try and restore the dignity of uh, each person uh, and certainly my seemingly radical give everyone money, like just struck some people as ridiculous on its face because it's like, oh, like, like, how can that be? Um, but, uh, you know, we we convinced millions of Americans um, this crisis is convincing another millions of Americans. And I, I'm optimistic that we're going to actually be able to humanize this economy in the days to come, in part because we just don't have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to share in some of your optimism. I always well, appreciate Well, I'm so glad, it. Crystal. If I helped make you more optimistic, <laughs> then that's like my accomplishment <laughs> of the day. Uh, and then you're going to spread the optimism to millions. And then we will take over, you know, the the the, the government. <laughs> yeah. I just want people to know that they have power. I mean, that's the thing, really, is I want people to know that they are not powerless observers, that they actually have agency and power in this system. And that may be, you talked about one of the biggest lies, that may be one of the biggest lies that's fed to people is that they they can't do anything, that they're hopeless, that they have to leave it to the people here. No, you have power and agency. You just have to take it. Well, you're a living proof of that, Crystal. You were a 27-year-old woman who just ran for Congress, not having any business doing so. Uh, mm-hmm. And now, now you're a voice of reason and progress to millions uh, and an awesome role model. And I'm, I'm really glad to consider you a friend. Well, same here, Andrew. I really admire what you've done and I cannot wait to see what comes next also. Crystal, are you working on anything you want to share? 
Well, the big thing is we would love for people to check out Rising on YouTube. Just go to the Hills YouTube channel and hit subscribe, smash subscribe, click the bell, all that good stuff. We love having um, our viewers engage and just really appreciate those people who have said that the show have been meaningful to them. And check out Crystal and Sager's book, The Populist Guide to 2020. A uh, series of essays about the race. I show up in some of them, um, but there's a lot of wisdom in this book. I learned a lot by reading it. All the best to you and the family. Be safe out there. And uh, thank you so much. Say hey to John for me as well. I will do that. Same to you and yours.